This is the Average Guy Network, and you have found Cyber Frontiers, show number 47, recorded on August 20th, 2018. Here on Cyber Frontiers, we explore cybersecurity, big data, and the technologies that are shaping the future. If you have questions, comments, or contributions during this webcast, we do have an email you can send us. You can send it to me, Jim at TheAverageGuy.tv. Track Christian down. He is just Christian at TheAverageGuy.tv. Find us both on Twitter at Jay Collison, and Christian is out there at Borg Whisper. Of course, TheAverageGuy.tv, both uh, media and web hosting, partnered and powered by Maple Grove Partners. Get secure, reliable, high-speed access from people that you know and you trust if you're looking for some kind of plan, any kind of web hosting or even media hosting for your podcast, check out maplegrovepartners.com. And if you haven't subscribed yet, do so on Apple or on Google Podcasts, YouTube or Spreaker, wherever you're listening, they all have different ways of subscribing. Just do it. Just subscribe over there so you get it automatically every time we unpredictably release a podcast. Christian is back. It's been, I don't know, six weeks maybe, Christian. We had good intentions of going every two and then... We were every two for three in a row, and know, the fourth great. one, it was like vacation, travel, blah. So is this four or six? I don't know, but uh, those know. those those good intentions are still alive and well, but yeah. We'll see no, we're back tonight. Out. That's all that matters. We're back tonight. You're back from DEF CON. I think that's probably the most important thing on the agenda. Tell us a little bit about it uh, and, and uh, what, you, what you pulled out of there. Yeah, uh, DEF CON was pretty fun. Uh, third year I've been out. Uh, a lot of the same cast of characters that I've talked about on this show before were out there with me this year as well. Um, cool stuff this year. I have to say, I think I'm getting to the point with the conference where uh, future uh, times I attend, I will probably go and focus more on doing one specific challenge or one specific community engagement or interaction, just because I think you get to a point with DEF CON where you attend it for a few years and you're very focused on like talks and presentations and kind of like going through formal tracks and hanging out and checking out villages and so forth. But I think as the talks start to become more um, like you get used to the talks, they're easier to digest. Um, it becomes more fun for people who have been doing the conference for a while to spend a whole weekend maybe doing a CTF or a competition or working on the badge challenge or just something that um, requires a lot more active keyboard hacking and working than um, just kind of sitting by and watching the talk. So um, I would have liked to have done a little bit more of the hands-on this year. I think this was a good year for me to realize that next year I am going to do a lot more hands-on. Um, but still some great talks this year. I think with DEF CON, I find that there's always like the really great talks, the really crappy talks and the in-between. Um, I think this year, there are about two or three that stuck out to me as either relevant, well done, and or uh, pretty interesting and practical. Um, definitely some talks that uh, just were not of interest this year to me. So again, that's kind of part of my motivation for it's a, it's a combination of some years you get better topics than others and and some year, and as you attend more frequently i think your taste level for the talks change over time as well you mentioned the badge challenge what was the badge this year oh yeah let's see if i have the badge for a live demo here the badge is pretty awesome um 
I will hold up DEFCON 24's badge and compare it to DEFCON's 26 badge here. So this for our video listeners here, this was the DEFCON 24 badge from three years ago. Um, this was the electronic badge challenge, et cetera. Um, then the second year I went, they had an issue with their manufacturer. So they weren't, weren't able to do electronic badges while they usually do. Then this year, I mean, the thing was pretty intense. This was this year's badge, kind of like this long form badge. It's a village on the front, basically. And when the batteries are powered up and working, there's little people encoded on this village that move to different parts of lit up areas. Um, and basically the way badges work at DEF CON, um, it involves getting into the firmware, playing with the firmware, reflashing the firmware on it, probably bricking your badge. Um, but especially with this year, one of the concepts of the badge was, you know, there are different types of badges at DEF CON. There's human badges, speaker badges, goon badges, and they're all different colors. So artist badges. Um, so you pretty much had to get in contact with almost one person who would have that type of badge of all the different badge types in order to get anywhere close uh, to being able to solve the badge challenge. So it definitely required a lot of collaboration even to get to the kind of midpoint of the challenge. But the people who solve the badge challenge are basically working from the moment they land off the airplane to the moment they leave on it. Like that's all you do if you actually want to win the badge challenge. Um, And typically no more than like three or four people per year actually finish the badge challenge out of the 25 to 30,000 people who show up for this. And uh, that's pretty notable because the prize of course is a black badge, which gives you free access to DEF CON for life. Um, but uh, again, that's, that's one of the many different things you could do in, in lieu of going to uh tracks and talks don't, don't you think for one year it'd be worth it to just kind of grind it out and get that get it solved and get the free oh yeah and- oh yeah you got to be wicked smart at reverse engineering and firmware though so it's like you could pour your whole soul into it and come out like this close and still have a miss come out empty yeah 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 well that's cool no i'm i'm always intrigued by the badges that was a when we first started talking about those a couple of years ago that was a new That might be a fun thing to go to because anybody can go, right? I could go. I just got to pay. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I mean, that's one of the hallmark features of DEF CON too is uh, $280 cash at the door, no registration, no nothing. It's yeah. like one of the only conferences you can go to at that scale of size and not have any kind of paperwork. So it's pretty bizarre. Yeah. 300 bucks in a hotel room. And Vegas isn't my most favorite place, but hanging out around that. I imagine even for an average guy like me, there's probably some interesting. But uh, it would still, I think it might be kind of interesting. I'll have to, I'll have to look into that maybe in a fall coming near um, you. Hey, uh, so it's DefCon's a lot about hacking, and uh, and there's an, you have an interesting uh, you have an interesting link one I didn't even think about around voicemail. So seriously, yeah. are we cracking voicemail? Is it like yeah. 1980 all over again, or what? It is. Not only is it like 1980s all over again, but um, it's amazing how many people forget about voicemails as being a vector into your life. Um, But, you know, humorously, voicemails have become increasingly a coveted target for uh, attackers because 
we have set up so many of these accounts to deal with uh, two-factor authentication, right? And one of the really common ways that people do kind of cheap, lazy um, two-factor authentication is to get a six-digit code texted to your phone or, you know, have them talk some kind of thing in your voicemail and then you put in the numbers into the system and you move on to your life. Well, a lot of times when you forget your password, how does a company authenticate you to reset that password? They send you something in your email, but then they also send you a confirmation code to your phone or to your voicemail that allows you to go ahead and reset that account. So um, really the point and purpose of hacking voicemails is not so much about you know listening to uh, what Jim said to his mom last week, but much more so about uh, what uh, automated bots are calling into that phone um, to allow you to reset accounts. And so, you know, if I know your email address, but I don't know your password, but one of your factors for resetting and getting back in your account is that you um, send me a six digit code to my phone, huh? That might suddenly become a really valuable target for a hacker. And so um, this is kind of very fresh in our memories because at the beginning of this month, um, or I, I believe it was the beginning of this month was when the um, Reddit team disclosed that they basically got hacked. And, and the main vector was, um, well, first damage was exposed log source code and user data from 05 to 07. That's one thing. But the, the vector was they... That the attacker intercepted the SMS message of an employee that was using two-factor authentication on their phone, got that two-factor code, finished going through the reset, and then all of a sudden had a privileged account with Reddit. Now, this is very substantial because people are like, well, you know, it's my phone, it's my text messages, how am I being quote-unquote intercepted? Well, this is kind of the 2018 version of social phishing and engineering, right, where there are potentially some technical ways that you might try and force a phone to unlock itself from, from its SMS card, but much more likely if you are a hacker on the cheap and you want to get access to someone else's cell phone, what you need to do is convince a, uh, a tier one or whatever support agent on, on a cell phone carrier that you're transferring the phone away, you're transferring the phone to, and oh, if you could only just unlock that SIM so that I could move it over to this new phone I'm leaving, long story short, um, it's a great social engineering vector for someone to convince the person on the other end of the phone that you first are who you are and then convince them to unlock that um, activation for your SIM card so that you can transfer it where you'll be able to get those text messages. So um, what this really tells us is that phones in general, because of the text messaging in and of itself being a weak point, are not reliable forms of two-factor authentication, right? What's the classic definition of two-factor? It's something you know with something that you have, right? Um, so traditionally, the thought was, well, I have my cell phone, therefore I have my second form of authentication in addition to my password. Uh, what we're finding, obviously, is that not nearly as secure as we thought, certainly way better than having nothing, but now it's getting easier for if attackers want to target something of value that you have, it's not as far-fetched to go and get your phone text messages going off to the wrong place. Um, 
certainly a higher level of difficulty than just brute force guessing of password and username, but not out, not so impossible that your everyday hacker can't get into that space. Um, with with voicemail, super interesting, right? Because if you log into Google and ask for your two factor, uh, a lot of these two factor places say, "Hey." Uh, don't text it to me, call me and, and read out the numbers to me, right? Well, then what happens if you don't pick up the phone? It goes to your voicemail, right? Um, and so this is where if I'm an attacker and I know your email address and I can put that in and then click to do the reset and say, hey, I don't want a text message today. Go ahead and call me. You don't pick up the phone so your voicemail does. Now, all of a sudden, my attack vector is get to your voicemail and I'm able to reset and gain access to your account. Um, maybe still sounds a little bit implausible to some of our readers, but let's consider how much more insecure voicemails are than most of our other forms of security today. Number one, most voicemail pins are four or six digits. So with a, a four-digit pin combination, um, I can write a Python script to quickly permutate through every combination and test your voicemail within two days, right? Uh, second thing is I don't have to call your phone directly to get to your voicemail because each cell phone carrier provides a call center where you can call the 1-800 number and leave someone a voicemail directly in their inbox or check your voicemail directly without having to go to your phone, right? So it's not like you're seeing these calls come in every time when I'm trying to crack in your voicemail. I'm, I'm doing it on a phone number that you're not even seeing. Three, a lot of people don't bother to ever set a voicemail password. And on most of these carriers, the defaults are the last four digits of the phone number, a series of repeating ones. So if you haven't done due diligence to set up your voicemail or you recently transferred from a different provider, chances are you might still have your default password pin set up. So really... Attack vector is very efficient and a very small um, potential number of permutations needed to crack and access your voicemail. Um, and if I'm very good at setting up your your uh, a, a way to digitally call your voicemail from a computer with a scripted response, then I can start brute forcing these uh, logins pretty quickly. So. Obviously, humans are pretty predictable, though. So chances that you end up having to even go to the lengths of brute forcing something with a script um, might not be the first step you want to take, right? Uh, one of the studies that this author, Martin Vigo, includes in the talk during DEF CON is like humans are very predictable when they think about patterns and numbers, especially in a finite space of four-digit pins. Um, so you have a 22% chance of guessing a four-digit pin just by trying the top 20 most common, right? So I've already taken between that, taking a fifth of the users off the board for their voicemail, maybe take another 10% off for people that have default passwords or have recently moved over voicemails, and then the remaining 70% um, I can try with brute force hacking mechanisms, right? So you might say, well, aren't there, aren't there things that the cell phone companies are doing to prevent these types of brute force pins? And yeah, they tried to come up with this crappy thing where in order to validate that you received the two-factor successfully, it asks you to type back a random sequence of digits before it basically saves you. Uh, message onto your voicemail, right? Problem with that is 
the way phones are built, everyone thinks of them because we have cell phones, but when you're actually making a call, you are it is a frequency that is being put over the wire. So a lot of these validation mechanisms don't understand order of operations or order in which you type things in. They just validate that the, the validation step hears all the frequencies it expects to hear for the challenge that it sent you. So what's the easy way to get around that? Play every single frequency of every single dial tone that can be possibly made over a phone and bypass that validation step. So at the end of the day, very low bar for attacking and getting access to your voicemail. And if all I have to know is Jim's email and cell phone number, which are very common pieces of information to come by, I can make a very targeted attack on you, gain access to your voicemail, and then uh, start resetting things that you might care about, like, I don't know, your PayPal account, your Google account, etc. So something that seems relatively benign and kind of passe, like who does voicemail anymore, a uh, major compromise vector for people who have this form of two-factor setup. And literally, the only type of two-factor that is secure on your cell phone is the type of two-factor that is involved with an application where you actually have to touch something. So like Duo, for example, is a good example of that. Your finger has to physically touch or make a pattern or click accept, right? But it's not some type of text or voicemail-based mechanism in which you're providing the two-factor. Um, other type is actual physical hardware-based tokens, which I think the average guy, it took a while to get the average guy to being comfortable with, oh, I'm going to get a text message and put the numbers in and everything's going to be okay. I think we're there. This problem is it's really kind of fallen out of style if you want to actually be secure against these personalized attacks. So while I was at DEF CON, I went to um, an event and got a sneak preview of, uh, well, it's I, I got a sneak preview primarily because I've never seen them before, but you can go and order these online today. Um, your key to Google's strongest security, it's called their advanced protection program. Um, inside this box, you see two devices. One is a physical kind of one-time uh, one password button where you, you key press your finger with the button and it produces a one-time password that acts as your two-form authentication. The other authenticator on this side is a... Uh, basically a Bluetooth uh, two-factor where you press, it's a button press here that provides the two-factor. And Google has this advanced protection program where, um, so so the Bluetooth one is called the, I can't say this word right, the, the Fetian multi-pass uh, FIDO security key. Um, no, the, the FIDO security keys on the left or right of my screen. It's the one that is not Bluetooth. Um, and then you have the Bluetooth two-factor on the other side. So you need both of them to turn on the advanced protection program for the Google service. So one wireless key, one USB key. Um, that's so that if you lose one of your hardware mechanisms, you have a backup. Just like if you're using text-based uh, Google two-factor, you put in a primary cell phone number and a backup cell phone number in case something happens to your primary. So, you know, a lot of enterprise companies uh, already deploying hardware-based two-factor authentication are not really in this boat as much, but your average guy, a lot of people are thinking that they're protected by getting these six-digit pins and doing the SMS or the voicemail. Um, and truth be told, this is one of the most plain, straightforward, pie-out-of-the-sky attacks I've seen in a while where someone who is only slightly above the average guy could 
do very well at exploiting this capability um, for malicious intent. So I thought this was a high value talk because it was a very easy to understand. Presenter did a great job of laying out the history, um, starting with voicemail research he had done going back to the 80s, made very compelling arguments for how we got to where we did today. Um, And really like some of the common sense mitigations are like, yeah, if you're living in the modern times of text messaging and regular like online video conferences, maybe just get rid of the voicemail, right? Like never set a voicemail up to begin with. Now for some people, not possible, totally understand it, but there might be a lot of people where the mitigation is simple, like don't use voicemail, don't set up an inbox. Um, but that still doesn't protect you from your phone being protect, potentially personally attacked to try and get a text message, right? So um, I thought the attack, I thought the attack vector, very practical, large surface area of people who fall into this boat, very high impact for people who might be able to gain access to these accounts. So ironically, today, I was talking to you about this in the pre-show. I got an email from Google uh, in my Gmail saying, hey, turn on your advanced protection for your main account. Yeah. And they offered me those two devices. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the Fediton, is that how you pronounce it? Yeah, I don't know the correct pronunciation. Feritin, it's spelled F-E-I-T-I-A-N. Fedian? Um, that, that's 50 bucks. And then the YubiKey or Yubico from uh, is a four, it's a twenty dollar deal. Mm-hmm. You look like you got a little kit. Were they giving those away, or did you buy them when you were? Uh, this was a this was a VIP thing that I nice. that I was able to pick up here. Yeah. But um, you can buy these kits online. Yep. And um, so so weird that I got that today. That was and then you as you were showing those, I'm like, wait a minute, I just saw an email. And then two, Christian. One of the things I've always been concerned about, you know, is we get these. Sometimes I get these four-digit codes back via text, right? So I've, in theory, you're like, okay, at least I have to be signed into my phone to see them. But they show up on your lock screen. Like, you you know, like, that doesn't make much sense. Like, if someone's gotten a hold of your phone, they can yeah. see them. They press the button, well, they, can see your, they, can, they can see them. That never made sure. sense to me. Well, I mean, you can set up your, um, are you talking about like the Duo app where you can click accept or, yeah. No, I'm, I'm talking like, um, like when regular I get text a text messages. message. Yeah, when I get a regular text message. So there's a setting both for Android and iPhone where you can turn off text messages showing up on the lock screen where it just shows that you have a new message as opposed to also showing you the details, right? So that's on you to turn on or off. But yeah, like just another example where defaults might might burn you if someone physically has your cell phone. Yeah. No, that never made sense to me. It was like, uh, you know, hey, uh, I can see this thing. <laughs> like, it's not that secure. If someone had my phone, they wouldn't even need to be in my phone. So that's good to know. I probably need to review that and lock it. I am noticing a lot of the, you know, like my Windows or my Microsoft authentication now for work is I have to log in and approve it. Um, I Today, I was helping my mom out with some stuff. I had her log into my Google account. And um, immediately I got a message saying, hey, are you trying to do this again? I had to do something. And then a new message that I hadn't seen in a while, which was, we've put a number on the screen. Is it, you know, 37? Is it 56? Is it seven? And you had to go in and press, you know, they, they were displaying a number. They, mm-hmm. they, they gave you three. So that was, I had never seen that vector yeah. before or that security uh, level. So um, I, interesting, as you're saying, then, like, 
the most secure is where you need to go in and physically interact with it on your phone. Absolutely. So four numbers back in a text message that you could see on the lock screen, not, not pretty, it, it, as well as voicemails, pretty easily defeated. Right. Um, and so I'm going to, dang it now, now I'm going to have to go, now I'm going to go in and figure out all these things like, oh, I still have these, what I thought was two factor. That's really not. And I've been really holding off on buying a key. Am I, am I, Christian, are those days over? I mean, if I'm really going to be secure, do I have to have one of those or both of those that you just showed? Yeah, either either a hardware key like what I showed or the Duo app where it's a physical app on your phone and not. Um, so you might not have to carry around keys yet, but definitely you need to carry around an app on your phone at a minimum. So it's one of those things where, yeah, it's like, we we worked very hard to get the average guy to be happy with two-factor and i think people are there but now the way that we do two-factor needs to evolve for the average guy so what about like LastPass authenticator where it's it's asking me and i've got to push okay that's yes, that's okay that's, that's secure right because it's an app and it's a yeah, yeah. it's an so it's google a physical interaction google authenticator giving me six numbers that's okay Again, yeah, as long as the Google Authenticator, it's a physical app and yeah. they're not sending it to you as a text message, right? No, they're saying, hey, I need you to log in and right. give me these six numbers, right? Yep. Both LastPass and Google have, and Microsoft have all their own authenticators. I've used a variety of them. Whenever I log into LastPass, I've got two factors set up where it pushes me. I have to go to the app on the phone and then it gives me like two minutes to authenticate. And, you know, I always make it in about a minute and... 15 seconds or something like that, but go in and push, have to push the okay button. That's a better, that's a better two factor then is what you're saying. Okay. Yeah, All yeah, right. exactly. Right. So I think I can hold off. I just need to get, I need to start making a mental note of when I get that two factor sent to me to go change that to one of the apps that's doing it. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Just make sure you're on apps or hardware and, and get off any of the legacy stuff that's texting you numbers. Right. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's good. That's good to know. I'll have to look back through those. I don't have many of them left, but there are a few, I think, yeah. that are that are still doing it. And that's just a good reminder to think, okay, next time I do that and I get that two-factor, um, and I should probably, you know, Google's on the forefront of a lot of the things with two-factor. I should probably go in and take a look at some of these other methods, these other modes that are out there. But it's just a good reminder. Just like once a year when you change your, you know, when you look at your smoke detector, probably a good idea to kind of make a check and say, are these, you know, am I doing this? Have I removed those kind of older forms? Because I think that's what they are, right? They're kind of older forms of two-factor when they would text them to you. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, what What else? What else do you got for us? So, yeah, that 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 was kind of like big, big takeaway for me. Um, mm -hmm. Second one uh, was a great one-on-one presentation called your bank's digital side door. Uh, and this was pretty fun. So a lot of us like to use personal finance applications that are offline from our online, whatever. So Quicken or QuickBooks or money dance or what used to be the Microsoft money's package, right? We like, we like managing our finances in an app and doing planning and tracking, et cetera. Um, and this link will be in the show notes too, but really great PowerPoint and presentation on how the standard that defines how banks share that information about your transactions and data securely, 
that standard was developed in the 90s, like 96, 97, right? And really, um, there were no major evolutions on the protocol until um, 2007, right? So the protocol in and of itself had had a massive length of iteration for like basically not touching it at all. And then it had a major refactor in 2007. Um, and then Microsoft in 2009, 2010 got out of the business of their finance apps altogether. So Quicken was like this vacuum monster that owned the space and and they didn't do much with the protocol at all. And, you know, now today's date, there is um, kind of what they call version two of the protocol which was done a couple of years ago. But the problem is like 95% of the banks are still using that version one protocol from yesteryear. So here's the breakdown. 76% of OFX servers, uh, OFX stands for the open finance exchange protocol that basically, you know, of the 8,000 or so bank institutions out there, each of these banks set up their OFX stack and that allows, you know, your personal finance application to authenticate with the open exchange. The open exchange is what's pulling data securely from your bank account and pushing it back to your client, right? 76% are still using the original 1.02 spec that was, you know, built in the late nineties. Another 20% 103. So not much better. Um, No one's using the latest 203 and only 4% are using version two of the protocol, right? So just to give you some context of how ancient this is, version one of the protocol, everyone's pretty familiar with what XML is, right? Like JSON is the hot, sexy thing that XML never could be, right? There, in the original specification of the protocol, they use something called SGML. It is basically a hacky precursor to what XML was, where there's no such thing as a closing tag, for example. Um so that just shows you how totally dusted and dated this protocol is. TLDR, um, really poor implementations of OFX across um, the banking community and to the point where lots of stack traces you can go and find on these servers, lots of like just by literally visiting the some of the endpoints, you can get it to spill all sorts of information about how the OFX server is set up. So, you know, the breakdown in this presentation was that there are about 15,000 financial institutions in the in US and Canada. Of those 15,000, 7,000 are commercial banks. So some commercial banks might run one or more exchange. Um, of the banks, there are about 7,000 ex- uh, open exchange servers, 2,000 of which are public uh financial institutions and 400 public servers. And among the 400 public servers that were investigated, uh, really amazing. I mean, just some of the, some of the bad stuff, expired certificates, um, stale DNS records, um, very easy to fingerprint the servers and get very detailed insights into what the custom implementation and server that that the banking institution used to implement the OFX protocol, whether it's IBM server or Apache server or whatever the customization is. Um, so lots of fingerprinting, lots of stack traces. So, you know, there was nothing really um, like, here's the earth shattering attack vector that's going to allow me to compromise your financial information through um, Quicken or the OFX exchange. But 
you know, when we summarize the vulnerabilities that were found with very basic fingerprinting, uh, we categorized about 221,000 vulnerabilities across the current space of these servers. Um, things found in production, including but not limited to web server disclosure, framework disclosure, server version, database disclosures, full stack trace and server file paths, out-of-date software, unhandled exceptions, long-lived session keys, multi-factor authorization ignored, um, internal IP address disclosure, valid user enumeration, personal email disclosure, unmaintained servers, null pointer returns, unregistered URL references, and reflected cross-site scripting. So, I mean, just the fact that you can rattle off those 20 things with barely, and like I said, very minimal, I am stupid and barely no computer stuff, super scary. And so, you know, the real conclusion is that these OFX stacks are really what we call your digital side door, right? The bank is super good about securing the front door and super good about putting guards at the back door. But then there's this sneaky CD side door that was built 30 years ago that, you know, they, they don't post anyone by and they just, you know, the landlord kind of has a key sort of thing. Um, so, OFX kind of like your digital side door to your bank. And it's really sad because I feel like this is one of the areas where we have learned a lot about how not to do these stupid things over and over again. And a lot of the technical debt in the world's internet corpus has been cleaned up in many other areas. This is one area where it's still super poor and super lacking. And so um, I thought it was great to see this kind of attention called out to it um, because I have not seen this protocol really dissected or looked at very much in a hacking conference before. So uh, really just, again, no smoking gun of like, oh, I now have all your data, but definitely like, wow, so many possibilities. It probably wouldn't take much if someone was really committed to figuring out the keys to the kingdom with this protocol. So a while back, United Mint account that's into its... You know, yes. that's right. That is kind of there. That's where that landed, right? When you talked about the 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 holy grail of all money applications, they all funneled there. They were the only one left standing. Like you said, Microsoft Money got out of business as a money user for a decade. And then one day, literally, they just said, I'm out. Like, I mean, they tapped out yeah. quick. Yeah. They were gone, right? I think they saw the writing on the wall. So um, I used Mint for a while, and then I closed it down. Uh, and... I thought, so as you were talking about this, I'm like, hmm, I wonder if I still got, you know, whenever we talk about this stuff, you get me all paranoid. <laughs> so I, I remember closing this down. I was able to log back in with my original username and password. The last one I used before I quit the account, it let me reopen it back up again. And guess what it sent me? A text message with a six digit. Mm -hmm. right? like, mm -hmm. How ironic could that be tonight as we're talking yeah. about all those things that, uh, so now I'm logged in and I'm thinking it says, see all your money in one number, right? One place. And they're not letting me get to my user account at this point. It, it's it's going to make me set up an account somewhere first. Oh, yeah. Before oh, yeah. let me get into yes. my user account, reestablish. So like at this point, it's open, but it's not. It's not connected to anything. I don't really like it's there. It works, but it's like I said, it's a it's a scary spot. I'll probably have to go through it connect some things to it, then deconnect everything, which of course leaves a trail. So Christian, it is a, like this in real time, this is right before us. This is a little janky, I think. Yeah, 
Absolutely. And, you know, one of the pretty, I, I don't know, the revealing thing about, I think, how we got to this spot is just because Microsoft pulled out of this market and kind of made it a monopoly, no competition, it was that laziness, I think, that empowered this technical debt to pile up where we've burned it off in other places, right? So it's definitely one of those protocols that everyone uses it because that's the thing that's out there and no one is willing to invest to fix it because that costs money. And when you have a monopoly and no one challenging you against that monopoly, your interest in making it better is very low. Um, and that's really why this market has in particular gotten to the place it's gotten. Um, and I think, you know, again, I think with a little bit more time and attention from some uh, talented offensive hackers, it could be a much scarier situation than the overview that we got. But even just the overview is very eye opening. I think. Yeah, it makes sense. And you know, I watched all those banks come online. I was in the banking industry uh, for a lot of years, and I watched banks come online. I was part of a bank as it launched its V one and V two of its of its online banking. In those days, I sat two two cubes down from the senior guy doing it, so I kind of heard. What was yeah. going on? And um, Christian, what's amazing to me is 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 secure as we want these banks, their online banking is some of the jankiest software. I mean, it's yeah. gotten better. It's gotten better, but it's been pretty jankity in the, in well, the past. And so one of the interesting uh, slide decks in this presentation was he shows the 20 different kind of like software components where some are acquired, some are built custom in-house, et cetera. And it's this huge hodgepodge of middle layer, basically just talking to one another. And yeah, exactly what you're saying. Like some of these companies have since gone out of business and they don't really have the source code to maintain it. So it's just that stack that they worship to at night and hope that it comes up the next day. And it's like, it's scary that we do that with banks, um, but uh, very much a lot of proprietary and or defunct uh, protocol standards uh, with banks in general. And so, yeah. you know, banks really break things down into four key areas. Um, your core systems and your interfaces, right? Your data analysis, your data assembly and your customer access, right? The data analysis apps, there's like 12 to 15 standard data analysis apps that, a bank is going to offer you. And each of those apps are individual middleware or contracted out pieces or whatever. Then you have your internal core systems, which don't look similar between one bank to the next. And then somewhere in this customer access layer, you have to take all that customized stuff and distill it down to some open standard that all these banking clients can use for the average guy. And it's just yeah. totally a very bizarre model that you don't see quite as bad in other places. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I think 15 years ago when I was doing data warehousing for a bank here in the Midwest and in those days, I mean, 15 years ago, it's a long time ago. And we were moving around big data files, customer data files for our marketing teams. And they didn't think in those days, we weren't thinking like, Hey, there, it, you know, yeah, there's some information. There's, well, I should probably say there's probably some serious PII in that in those days that we didn't even think twice about rolling across the network or rolling across the internet or, you know, rolling across to people um, that today would be like, yikes. I bet that's still, in some places, that's still happening just because you have people touching and messing with that data that aren't necessarily thinking about all the security ramifications of it because it's not deposit data. 
So I'm I'm sure it's getting better, but it it is one of those things where it is a little scary on this. And these banks have a tough job because when you when you come to these sites that are aggregate sites and they're trying to aggregate your banking because their whole goal is to get a is to get a net worth, right? Then they want to sell you things based on your net worth, right? That's that's their whole goal. And so their motivation is to get as much information about you as possible. How that information gets there, not necessarily, they're they're not necessarily as concerned about that. And so pulling that stuff in, you know, you go to some banks and it looks this way and you go to other banks and it looks this way and it's a little, you know, and you're kind of like, hmm, is this, is someone watching the store here, you know? So it, man, it, it is, this is, this is one particular area I'm pretty paranoid in. Yeah. And, and it's, so it does, it, it alarms me. Now I'm going to probably be up all night, like checking all my banking. I've done the, I've done the needful. Yeah, this is like having LastPass on every time Amber would come on from LastPass, I'd spend all night fixing all my passwords. Yeah. And, uh, and so it, it's just, it is one of those things that, um, I think we should worry about. You got one more item from DEF CON. Yeah, maybe we'll talk a little bit more about it in the context next week too, on, uh, some ML stuff, but third, third topic is one that has kind of um, eluded a lot of people as to its real viability and use case. And uh, the title of the talk was called De-Anonymizing Programmers from Source Code and Binaries. And it's basically this concept of, are hackers truly anonymous when they post code online? Can I use samples of code to figure out when it's the same hacker posting additional stuff, right? And so this is a field called stylometry. That's a new word in most wow. people's vocabulary. Interesting. Um, and there are two types of stylometry, natural language and artificial language. In natural language, English, English as a second language, translated text or kind of underground uh, form chat, and then artificial language, like programming languages, your binaries, your source code, your Java, et cetera. Natural language, people like the FBI, expert witnesses, and crime units are going to be very interested in stylometry because if they can start to attribute and build a network in a pattern of, oh, it's this person talking again, they can use that to de-anonymize you um, in black market communities or otherwise, right? The artificial language... Um, same kind of expert witness situation, um, very much more so of doing like hacker attribution, other things, um, very kind of interesting concepts of why you would want to do this. Um, but it is a, raises a question about privacy infringement, number one, like if you want to anonymously contribute technical wealth to society, can you do it without being unmasked? Um, second is like, do you really think that you can securely if your conversations are anonymous, but out in the open, are they truly anonymous? Um, and so what, what these researchers did was they, they provided uh, supervised and unsupervised machine learning models and used something called, so Google hosts this programming conference every year called CodeJam, and it's this competition where you have to write varying levels of code complexity and so forth. Long story short, they published all of people's code samples in anonymous form every year. They used this as the training sample for a random forest classifier in which they were able to de-anonymize programmers. Um, among um, really interesting accuracy numbers with this, um, when they went to like multi-class domain problems within machine learning, they were able to accurately um, attribute someone 96% of the time, um, like really remarkable. Um, 
one of the graphs that they show is over time, basically, as you get to a larger number of authors, obviously your um, classification accuracy would go down. Um, some of the really interesting cases they showed was that even if you obfuscate your code or do other things, it it didn't fool the machine learning algorithm, right? So the, the way they designed their features were very smart. Traditional obfuscation did nothing. So for example, for a same set of 25 authors amongst 225 program files, the classifier had 97% accuracy with, with the code being like fully obfuscated and not readable to humans. Uh, pretty impressive, right? Um, again, they, they showed this, uh, doing similar approaches with binary. So like, you're not even reading the source code at that point, very similar success. Um, and really what they distilled down to what were some of the key, um, predictive features that allowed them to do this. Um, so they distilled the dimensionality of their data set down to like 53 key features and really re-representing the source code into an abstract syntax tree where you basically, build a tree of all the different components that make up the source code when it gets uh, ready for compilation. Um, those were the types of features that led them to very big results. And so um, obviously as you increase your number of authors over time, the accuracy will go down. So by the time they got up to 600 authors, they were down to 83%, right? But still like very large population and very substantial accuracy for that kind of accuracy. Now, Google Code Jam, like people are responding to well-defined programming problems. Uh, the sophistication of the programmer can often play a big impact into how well you can attribute someone. But guess what? Your hackers are very sophisticated coders. So they're going to have unique ways of doing things that will pick up very well in these feature values. So actually, as much and as convincing as that conversation starts, it's still pretty unknown in the industry of like, do we really believe in the stylometry thing? Like how... Um, how applicable is it to real world scenarios outside of programming questions? Um, and so th I think that's kind of some of the future work for these folks, but very interesting. Um, of course, we get to the end of this presentation and um, uh, one of the Prince Frederick roommates of yesteryear, Andrew Liu, is on the contribution slides because this was research he did while we were in the ACES program like three, four years ago. And he worked for a summer on this uh, project through the same people who ended up presenting it. Um, so that was a cool, uh, in-person DEF CON connection there, but, uh, great ongoing work, great corpus of data here and what they're trying to do. Um, and they're really working in a space that not many people are playing around with stylometry and open research forms in academia. So pretty exciting and different to see, um, but using the same common, um, dry, uh, machine learning methods that we would expect, which was actually really great because they showed a very new, um, use case and problem set with known reproducible machine learning methods. And that was, that was a very exceptional academia like part of the presentation that I appreciated. Hmm. Stylometry. Stylometry. Is that, is that how you say it? That's a new word. That's the word yeah. of the day. Word Ding. of the day. Stylometry. Stylometry. Holy moly. Yeah. It's, it, it does bring up interesting, you know, you, you started with a section and thinking about, um, you know, how people write or how people speak. And we all have these prints. And it's interesting to think about there are coding prints for people. Like they leave their coding style, their coding fingerprint 
where they go by the way they do things, by the way they solve things. Interesting in a world of copy and paste, if that, uh, you know, if you're stealing somebody else's work, uh, can that be found? Like plagiarism is found uh, today in Grammarly or some of those. There's some other tools where you can submit work to see if it's been plagiarized. And so not just identifying the person, but is does the code come from a base that's copyrighted or that is, you know, whatever? Are you stealing somebody else's work? Um, we used we used to call those script kitties, right? Where they would, you know, I, I I had a friend who would say, "Shoot, if I can't copy and paste, I couldn't code," you know. So it just brings up some interesting when you think about how good are we can we get at discovering the code and not only who it came from, but was it who was it copied from, or was it copied, or you know, I think there's some interesting things in there. Yeah, absolutely, um, and especially in a large wild west where there is a ton of just random stuff posted on the internet with like no info or real world attribution. Uh, it's kind of a very new way of thinking about thinking about the problem. So, yeah, well, and, and does that get criminally tied back? Can, if, if we start looking at, um, signatures or we start looking at code that lives in viruses or in phishing attempts or, you know, in, in some of these criminal activities, can we begin to see and those get subscribed back to people, do you think? Yeah, right on. Right on. Uh, and I and I and I think the answer is yeah. I mean, I think that's the common sense real world use case for this type of research. Um, I think it, it needs to be proven out a little bit more for the source code use cases, but stylometry is something that is used in uh, crime units already for regular English language and, and conversation. So yeah. uh, cool, cool stuff. Yeah. Cool stuff. No, it was, it was a productive DEF CON for you. It was, it was indeed. Uh, very excited about it. Good. Now, good to have you back and hopefully we can get as we go into fall here, hey, Christian, your first fall, right? Not going back to school? Or was uh, that? Second, I guess. Oh, it was, had it been a year already? Oh, yeah, yeah. I guess it has. Oh, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's oh, really it's Ashton that I'm thinking about. He's That's just right. Going. Yeah, he's Ashton. Just, that, that, that poor guy, he's just, uh, he's he's not going back to school. Yeah, he's he's new to the world of uh, cor- corporate. Yeah, time uh, flies. Yeah. But he, time uh, flies. He knocked out that master's and stuck it through and is... Yeah, we got to get him back so, on and a guest. I yes. know he, you know, he he always felt uncomfortable here, but we got to get him back. We'll, back we'll in on a guest. We'll get him back. Yes, he's, he's, I, I got. I'll pull out the introvert in him one way or another. Yeah, yeah. So, how how is life post one year after graduation for you? Things are very good. I uh, yeah. I mean, I, I I mean, I think everyone on the show knows just how busy and off in a million directions I was with college and work. Uh, I think one of the nice things post-life is that you drop all the noise and BS that goes on at college, all the constant context switching between school and work. Uh, so that's a lot of removed stress. Um, surprisingly, not all that much less busy. I think this confirms that I'm the workaholic that we always feared I was. Um, but, you know, I I enjoy kind of working in one large domain and being able to to build and acquire subject matter expertise and really just kind of dive deep um, as opposed to scatter gunning my life around mm-hmm. um, and having fun along the way. So, you know, I'm uh, rocking and rolling and uh, yikes. When I see some of the dicey stuff going on at uh, Maryland, that's been in the news the last couple of weeks.
Um, but I'm uh, not at all um, regretting not having to have that to tune and filter out for yeah. a year here. Yeah, so. no, for sure. You know, it's funny. I didn't realize. He's just thinking like, you've been out a year already? I mean, and then because your life for me didn't really change between yeah. what yeah. you were doing when you were at school and what you're doing now. It was just as crazy. I've, I saw you a couple times, but it didn't feel any different. You still yeah. had a million different things going on. You lived in a different spot, but, um, you know, it was just uh, not for you, for me, not that much has changed. You're still the crazy, busy, crazy things going on, doing great stuff. And so it was weird to think like, oh man, that was a year ago. That seems like it is pretty it seems weird, like yeah. it was just yesterday. Somebody Flipping was just time. somebody at Gallup was just asking me about you the other day. Yeah. And uh you and Ashton, you guys are rock stars, you're famous rock stars out there. You might be my two most famous uh interns. Yes. I didn't get hired. <laughs> well, <laughs> so it's all right. It's all right. They always wow. say they always say uh what comes around goes around. So maybe yeah. there'll be another day. You'll, you'll drag me out to Omaha one of these days and, um, yeah, we'll, we'll, uh, we'll figure something out. We'll do a meetup or we'll, we'll, we'll get something figured out. So, um, good. Anything else you want to say before I wrap it? No, I think that's a wrap, dude. Okay. Let's do it. Well, remind everyone subscribe, rate and review. If you're doing this on Apple, on Apple podcasts, if you haven't figured out on YouTube, uh, the subscribe buttons work actually surprisingly well. This won't be the best video to watch live, but we have a, I have a, kind of a edited or a produced channel over there at the average guy that you can subscribe to and get notified on anytime that uh, we make an update. So hit the notification bell when you're doing it there as well, or you can follow us on Spreaker. Don't forget the average guy.tv platform powered by, whoa, powered by Maple Grove partners. All of a sudden my mic got really loud. Isn't that what yeah. that, what's Sounds going good. on tonight? I know it's, it's been a little bit of a technical misfire all night. Holy cow. What is happening here? Okay, well, uh, Maple Grove Partners, get secure, reliable, high-speed hosting from people that you know and you trust. For more information, of course, visit maplegrovepartners.com. How, how, are, how is it at Maple Grove Partners, Christian? Rock, rock solid. We're uh, maintaining our, our close-knit but still growing uh, customer community. Um, I think if you look at the continuing response times of sites like The Average Guy, um, we definitely have the performance and reliability really rock solid. Uh, we are getting very solid on the redundancy. So we're, we're still doing work and expanding there, but yeah, rock solid, um, customers very happy and, uh, we're happy to have new folks help get their communities launched. So awesome. Awesome. Well, good, good stuff. Don't forget plans start as little as $10 a month to get them done. So if you want to do that, Maple Grove. Partners.com. I think I'm buying a brand new microphone tonight, actually. Yeah, the off buddy. buddy is no longer working. There you so, hey, I think it's four years um, on this thing. Uh, so maybe it's time for a new mic. Don't forget, if you have questions or comments, uh, send us an email, jim at theaverageguy.tv. You can send it to christian at theaverageguy.tv. That's really better because he'll get back to him. Not as fast as me, but he's smarter than I am. So you you will want to email him as well. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter. I'm at Jay Collison. And Christian is at Borg Whisper. Thanks for joining us tonight. A couple of you out there in the chat room. And Kevin and other Jim, good to see you guys out there. We'll be back in a couple more weeks with another one. And with that, we'll say goodbye. Good night.